This is a Federal News Network podcast. The 2022 appropriations enacted last week give the Defense Department some extra bread for facilities maintenance and repair. More than a billion dollars more. Plus, U.S. Space Force ponders a digital approach to assessing service members' fitness. Those stories and more in this week's DOD Reporter's Notebook with Scott Mossioni and Jared Serbu. And Jared, does this money give DOD what it needs to actually get around on front of all of its maintenance backlogs and facilities fix-ups, or does it just keep them from disaster for a little while longer? The scale of the problem is such that they're not going to be able to fix the giant amounts of maintenance backlog that they have all in one year. I think the best you could say this does is it keeps things from getting too much worse in 2022 and gets DOD closer to spending what its models actually say it needs to spend on facility sustainment and restoration and modernization. Somewhat mystifyingly, in the Pentagon's own budget request, each of the military services only requested 80% of what those models said that said they would need. And this congressional add-on is a really big plus up. In the case of the Army, they gave them 11.1% more than the service requested. The Navy got 15.4% more than it requested. The Air Force got 8.7% more than it requested. So again, not enough to completely dig out of what's really been at least 10 years of no knowing and neglect in these accounts on the part of DOD and to some extent Congress, but it does at least maintain a little bit of the status quo and keep more and more of these buildings from falling into failing condition, which has been a serious problem in DOD and across the military services. And they also told the appropriators that they, this that is DOD, that is, has a new model for how they plan out these things. Yeah, we know almost nothing at this point about how that's actually going to work. But the general idea is that instead of, instead of funding and programming these FSRM accounts as one giant portfolio in each military service, this new tool, they call it, would allow you to go down to a building-by-building level and assess the condition of various subcomponents of each structure of each facility to get a more granular assessment of exactly what sort of state each of those individual facilities are in based on those components so that you can then make better decisions about whether it makes sense to recapitalize an existing structure rather than maybe demolish it and spend military construction dollars to replace it or maybe do that function at another base. So that's that's one way they, they theoretically might be able to spend some of these FSRM dollars in a smarter way since they don't seem to be able to either internally or through the appropriations process quite get all, all of the money that the models say that they need. And this money is one year money or can the projects, which presumably would take more than the fiscal year has left in it, could they carry these projects over and hope to get further appropriations next year? Yeah, I'm really glad you pointed that out because that is another wrinkle here. This appropriation coming so late in the fiscal year, there is a question at least as to whether these added funds can be reliably um, executed by the by the military services in the remaining portion of fiscal 22. Because as, as, as your question points out, this is O&M money. So it is one-year money. It would expire on September 30th of this year. So it doesn't mean they have to get all the projects all the work actually completed by that date, but they need to at least obligate it by that time and figure out exactly where the money's going to go. And a final question on that. Does that plus up that you mentioned, does that include money for the Red Hill fueling facility in Hawaii or that was extra money? 
beyond the uh, that plus up for the O&M. It's not exactly specified. There will definitely need to be some environmental remediation to that site, but it really is more of an environmental remediation issue at this point, which would come out of a separate account rather than a facility sustainment issue since DOD has now made the decision to defuel and close that facility within the next year. Um, there, there may be some FSRM that needs to be needs to be done before that closure decision is actually made. But the whole Red Hill issue is is really a glaring exemplar of what happens when you don't take care of your stuff, I think. And it's, it's one of those things where I think DOD would definitely prefer not to be closing it down, but it became, you know, it became environmentally and politically untenable to have it there with all of these leaks. This this most recent one was not the only one they, that the Navy had already been under a consent decree with the state of Hawaii over previous leaks, um, largely due to uh, a lack of maintenance. All right. And turning to Scott Mossione, the Space Force here reporting is getting away perhaps from physical fitness tests that take place in physical fitness facilities using high-tech ways to monitor the health of guardians. Yeah, one of the staples of the military is that idea of the physical fitness tests that everyone has to take to ensure that they're ready to go into combat. But the Space Force is saying that starting in 2023, it won't be doing that. Instead, it's going to be relying on things like wearable techs to monitor Guardian's health in lieu of these fitness tests. And what they're doing is they're taking a three-pronged approach to this. So they want to ensure that people have a physical activity kind of lifestyle. They want to enforce performance medicine principles and then increase education and awareness about making sure that Guardians are mentally and physically fit. Now, that doesn't mean that they can sit on the couch all day. They're going to continue to need to be ready and expected to be ready to at least be uh, deployed somewhere and go and do something that may be possibly physically exerting. However, you know, the Space Force is, as we've mentioned before, a digital service. And, you know, that means that when they're deployed, they're not necessarily going to be these doing these traditional combat roles that you would expect from someone like an infantry or, uh, you know, a Marine. They're usually sitting by computers, you know, working on engineering type of projects. This is a much more uh, heady service compared to the other military services that were classically used to thinking about. On the other hand, without having a test but having some kind of electronic monitoring system, they might be able to tell more about someone's lifestyle and their general wellness than you can from a simple physical fitness test, perhaps. Yes, definitely. And we're seeing other military services doing this as well. And they also will have things like certain challenges to see how many steps people can get in during the day or things like that, much like we see in the private world with uh, you know offices. What the uh, Space Force has done, at least for this pilot program that they're doing this year, is just teaming up with a company called Fit Rankings. And this fitness platform tracks goals. It connects to other devices like Fitbits and iPhones. And really the mission of their their company is to create authentic and impactful digital fitness and health experiences for the communities. And they want people to be able to connect as much as possible. And that may be even connecting to what you eat each day, you know, tracking your calories, uh, tracking, you know, how long you're standing. Uh, people always talk about having an Apple Watch and filling their their rings, you know, staying staying standing for a certain amount of time in a day, walking a certain amount of time in a day. So, you know, they may just kind of amp up those sort of, of goals and just to ensure that people are staying 
within some sort of physical fitness realm. But everyone will get a wearable thing for the wrist. Yeah, at least for the wrist or possibly uh, we've seen a lot of people wear the rings now that, uh, you know, just goes over your finger, tracks things like sleep and your your fitness. So uh, these things are getting smaller and easier to wear. Uh, maybe in the next 10, 20, 30 years, we may even have something implantable that people use. There's many different opportunities that the military and these companies can do to ensure people are safe and, and looking farther ahead into how injuries may happen or how they can keep an eye on someone's health to ensure that they stay ready or are ready to be deployed. Federal News Network Scott Massioni and Jared Serbu. Check out their DOD Reporter's Notebook at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while, although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then clean houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right? To try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also 
reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Hmm. I would describe it, hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated. Uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, 
let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations and we all know that that just goes back and forth and oftentimes based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it, it, you were amazing. And it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you're sending money to. Second, Confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.